Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Talking Smack, where we talk superheroes, movies, animation, and comics. I am your host, Josh Scar, and I am joined by a very special guest this week, the host of the Cult-Worthy Podcast. You know him, you love him, you've heard his ads here, uh, Antonio Palacios. Antonio, how you doing? You know, I was doing great until you suggested we do this film, man. <laughs> so you've been bad for like three weeks then, huh? <laughs> it's been about a it's been about a week, I think, yeah. And then you 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 let it slip that you actually hadn't watched it, and you warned me. You're like, "Good luck," as if you had seen it. And then like, "Oh well, I haven't watched it yet." I'm like, "God damn it!" <laughs> I it's like Morbius. I haven't seen it, but I I know what's what's going on with it because I've heard people talking about it within my nerd circles. Uh, but I thought this. We have other plans for uh, other crossovers with you on the podcast, but this one, uh, after your G.I. Joe episode on your podcast, The Cult Worthy, which we'll have you talk about here in a second, uh, really got me thinking, like, what's a good way to not be happy on the 4th of July? <laughs> Let's watch a really bad G.I. Joe movie that uh, I know a lot of podcasts actually have kind of skipped over because of the bad ratings it's been getting. I mean, there's a lot of things to be unhappy about this 4th of July, and this is just now one more thing to add to the list. <laughs> but yeah, man, like, you know me, G.I. Joe fan through and through growing up. I did a whole episode based on the cult of G.I. Joe and the G.I. Joe movie and how much it meant to me. And, you know, my buddy who I had on, he's like a 14-year military serviceman. And, you know, we, we loved G.I. Joe together growing up. We saw both G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra, and Retaliation in the theater. You know, we were disappointed in the film, but appreciative of the effort would be the best way to say it. And the nostalgia. We intentionally skipped this one just because of the immediate anger towards the bastardization of this iconic character. But we can get to that a little bit later. That's just like, <laughs> that's just wetting your beak a little about how I feel about this, uh, this entry to the franchise, so to speak. So you do have another podcast. Feel free to tell us about that a little bit here. Well, yeah. So yeah, I got the Cult Worthy podcast and then I've got the Cult Worthy Classic, which is a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. That's my more pretentious podcast that's where i get to nerd out on old films and have guests on and really talk about like the influential films that a lot of people either have forgotten about or the two generations behind me have no knowledge of so it's more of an exposure show where the cult worthy podcast the one that you've been a guest on so many times and i'm sure we'll be a guest on again soon is more of uh covering cult worthy films cult classics obscure cinema but also bringing in other people's cult worthy um, ideas and topics. Like you were bringing comic books and we've had people bring in BBC shows and things like that. It's, it's kind of just building a name on things that deserve more of a following, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I love that concept because as you say, like everything can be cult worthy to, to someone or everyone has their own cult worthy definition and there, there are so many different genres of entertainment that it, it's easy to find a cult-worthy classic within any of those genres. Yeah, and this film is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's definitely no way this is going to be a cult-worthy classic in any means, which is why, again, we had it on this podcast and not yours. 
I mean, it's still going to be fun to talk about because, you know, the, the way I view this film is this is a film that was written and directed and starring people who may have, like, heard of G.I. Joe in passing, but have probably never seen an episode, never read a comic book, maybe never even owned a toy. Because I would like to think that if someone had done any of those things, they would have had a little bit more input into how this film was presented. You would hope so, or you would think so. But uh, speaking of your podcast, we are going to take a quick little break here and hear from Antonio from the Cultworthy Cultworthy Podcast to talk about his podcast again. We'll be right back. The Cultworthy Podcast. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you week by week through a bevy of cult favorites, obscure cinema, and hidden gems. Listen to us on your favorite platforms or follow us on thecultworthy.com. The Cultworthy Podcast. And we're back. Hope everyone enjoyed hearing Antonio there because we're going to hear a lot from him, I have a feeling, throughout yeah, this I episode. <laughs> It's a battle of the titans here with two people that like to talk, which I mean, that's why we're in podcasting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And especially, you know, well, you always got guests on and and I have a lot more guests on now, but like the first 30 episodes of my show was just me and the mic. So I got very used to just talking to the mic, talking to everyone listening, giving movie reviews. And um, I'm still getting I'm still getting used to and accustomed to speaking to someone across the screen. And sometimes it can be challenging when it's someone that wants to speak <laughs> as much as you do. Carrying a show on your own is no joke. I, I applaud anyone that can. Uh, it's it's not easy. I need that back and forth. Uh, even even if it is just to like give me that platform to go on a, a 20 to 30 second diatribe about nonsense. Uh, it It's still just the fact that you went and did 30 episodes on your own is impressive to me. Oh, thanks. And, you know, I, I'm kind of returning to that format a little bit um, on the Cult Worthy podcast just to to get some more of those obscure films out there in those like little blocks of four, those reviews, because there's still a lot of films to speak about. And um, there's not a lot of people that want to talk about four films uh, every week in in detail. It's It's easier to just pick one subject and go from there. Definitely. Yeah. The the four film idea with more than even one person to me sounds like a nightmare to edit. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think having conversations was a way to get out of editing, honestly. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. You just added out a couple of uh, mouth sounds and ums and you knows and you, you got a podcast. Uh, you'd like to think. <laughs> <laughs> We're here to talk about Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe Origins, which... I still feel like the first mistake they made was adding the G.I. Joe origins. Did they learn nothing from Wolverine X-Men origins? I mean, all of these prequels, all of these origin stories, not many of them have done well for either the audience or the subject matter of these films. We just don't see a lot of success. If anything, they kind of live in infamy and that's what kind of keeps them relevant. I mean, the Deadpool movie pretty much spent a quarter of the film just beating up on X-Men Wolverine Origins, you know? It's uh, it's just kind of what happens with these things. Yeah, and again, the executives who run these studios that are just trying to make a buck off these origin stories and these properties just don't seem to get it. But with that being said, uh, I messaged you when I finally did decide to 
watch it. I was I was very tempted to see if I couldn't just go through this episode and just completely blind and be like, yeah, this happened. And oh, no, that didn't happen. Are you sure? And just see what I could get away with. But I, I wanted to be a good host and I wanted to, to I guess, suffer along with you. So um, there I, I really don't. How do you th- how would you like to go through this? Because I have a couple of like I just stopped doing plot points at a certain point in the movie um uh is after the second betrayal i guess we we would say because uh there there's a there's a deny jesus three times kind of moment in this movie yeah that uh, after the second denial i was like i'm done (laughs) i'm just gonna watch this and see what happens well i mean like first of all i think we should talk about the i'm doing air quotes now creative control and creative minds behind this project. You know, the the director, Robert Schwenke, he kind of came out of the gate pretty hot when he did the film Red, which was a graphic novel adaptation. And I thought Red was actually a really good movie. I thought it was fun. It was a good use of Bruce Willis and John Malkovich and the material. So I thought that there was going to be some promising work from this guy. Then he did the, uh, what, R.I.P.D.? with uh, Jeff Bridges and Ryan Reynolds, which was kind of like Men in Black, but for the afterlife, not as good, kind of suffered from a lot of that, I would say, studio influence and just that need to please audiences. And then we just kind of keep seeing things like this from him. So when I saw that he was the director of this film, before I even saw the film, or even researched the actors or what the story was, my first thought was, well, maybe this can be like a redemption story. Like maybe this guy can make a his his credibility work again for me, but also maybe do something cool with one of my favorite intellectual properties of all time. Yeah, I didn't even bother going that deep into what this <laughs> who made this movie or how. I, I I just know that like even Paramount doesn't want this on their streaming platform. They gave it to Amazon. And Paramount's just like, no, we've got more Paw Patrol episodes to upload. <laughs> the The story of this, like I, I messaged you when I was like 45 minutes in. I was like, hey, this isn't terrible. And then like five minutes later, the G.I. Joe stuff starts getting introduced. I was like, oh, this this took a really quick turn. Well, it's not even like introduced. It's almost like hand fed to you. Because I think at some point they start, and this is one of the things about this film is that you know that you're supposed to be watching a G.I. Joe film, but for the first 45, 50 minutes, there is like zero reference to anything G.I. Joe related. And it almost feels like it could be a real good vengeance story if you just let it kept playing as it was and not trying to turn it into a G.I. Joe film. So I agree with you. Like, the first 45 to 50 minutes could have been like a entertaining revenge romp, you know, maybe something that uh, Luc Besson or one of those French filmmakers like to do. It, it kind of had that kind of feeling to it. Yeah. The, the, if, if this just kind of kept going at the story that it was at without introducing the GI Joe stuff, this is a solid C plus action movie that you just kind of see on TBS or USA and like, Oh, this is on. I'll watch this for half an hour until I fall asleep. But then they start shoving the G.I. Joe stuff and have getting really heavy handed with some lore, which I have questions about certain supernatural details that happen in this movie. 
Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was a part of the GI Joe library or if everything was more like military and re- real world based, but like there's giant ass snakes that can sense your soul and sense like the purity of your heart. And uh, there's a gem that <laughs> we'll get into all of that because again, I, this was written by someone who's seen all the movies and anime that you and I probably have and just threw together a story utilizing all of those beats. I mean, here's the thing. How many movies have we seen now in the last 20, 30 years where our hero begins his journey as like a prize fighter. Oh, it's like lot. the Mortal Kombat, the Mortal Kombat movies did it. This movie did it. We've seen a lot of the uh, Ongbok films, a lot of some of the uh, Muay Thai films from Thailand. It's almost like a classic story staple from Kung Fu films of the 70s and 80s. And this just copied that age old formula of I can only make money as a prize fighter. I mean, hell, the first X-Men movie did it with Wolverine where he's prize fighting <laughs> in the Alps or something. Yep, all that is true. And uh, when we're talking plot breakdown, uh, the very first note I have is dad is killed by a guy who rolls dice to determine the fate of his victims. Bad Two-Face ripoff gimmick. Uh, <laughs> gimmick. Ends up rolling snake eyes. And so our protagonist just takes on the name Snake Eyes because... The guy who killed his dad liked to play craps. Like what, what kind of origin? St- that's, that's solo level bad naming rights right there. Like you couldn't have given him the name snake eyes later when we have the giant snakes. Right. Maybe, maybe that makes more sense. Or maybe just never explain it. Maybe he can be a man with no name, like Clint Eastwood movies, you know, and then let the supposed sequel find out how we call him snake eyes it's it's just so much like you said that bad name giving like in the solo movie it's it really is a couple of people in a writer's room who think they've struck gold with this idea of like and then the guy rolls some dice and it's snake eyes and the people in the room are like oh that's amazing let's go with it you know that's how it feels (laughs) if it feels like you had a room full of people who really didn't know the story and then they were just making their own lore just coming up with like these hit points, bullet points. And okay, that's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. It's, it's this really weird enigma, I guess, for lack of a better word, that's happening in Hollywood right now, where we have to give origin stories to everything, including people's names, which again is just so weird. And it, it's not necessary. Alex and I talked about this last week with the, uh, the star Wars dartboard of what can we, what can we plot hole fill this week? Oh, uh, Anakin uh, was killed by Vader. Vader told Obi-Wan to his face that he killed Anakin. Okay, plot hole solved. And then, uh, oh, Leia has a holster in one of her costumes. Where did she get that? Oh, it happened in this adventure too. Who cares about any of this stuff? And like, we we kind of knew that from context from the previous movies that, okay, once Anakin takes on the mantle of Vader, Anakin is dead. Got it. Moving on. You don't need to hold our hands and walk away with this sort of stuff. In Return of the Jedi, Obi-Wan kind of explains it to him like in perfect phrasing. He's like, essentially, what I told you was true from a certain point of view. Darth Vader killed your father. Okay, explained. You don't have to go further down that (laughs) rabbit hole. And that's a problem with this. Yeah. 
And they they reaffirmed that too in episode three of Revenge of the Sith, where Anakin says, from my point of view, the Jedi are evil. Okay, yeah, you have hammered that point home. We don't need it to be reaffirmed again. And, you know, the the part that makes me the most upset about this, and I'm, I know we just barely started into the plot, but I mean, <laughs> it's that kind think, of movie. Think about who, as as a fan, we would think that this film should have been made for us, people that already know the lore. This isn't made for a teenager of this day and age who really knows nothing about G.I. Joe. This is fan service for people age 30 to 45. And it should be expected that we are going to be upset when you start changing lore in an origin story that most of us already kind of know the lore of, just like they did with the Han Solo movie. They should know by now with how much failure there's been in these origin films that the fanboy community and intellectual property appreciators like me and like you are going to call bullshit. But I think the weird thing is like, I, I think they know that. I think they expect us to go spend our $15 in the theater so they can get our money and then we can call bullshit all we want. But not me. I waited until it was absolutely free and for a <laughs> podcast to watch this film. <laughs> The connected universe idea is so hard to pull off. And I feel like this movie really came close to doing what Iron Man did. The problem mm. is you can't be subtle with G.I. Joe. If, if you're alluding to the Joes, people are going to figure it out immediately. But like with S.H.I.E.L.D. and Iron Man, you, they're doing the strategic homeland intervention and enforcement logistics division thing. And so mm. people are just getting like trying to catch up with what did he just say? And no one's thinking of the acronym. And again, Iron Man sits well enough on its own as a movie, but this movie ends up getting uh, hijacked by a couple of GI Joe mainstays. And it, it doesn't, it's no longer its own movie. It's trying to expand out. And that's where so many of these connected universe movies happen uh, to, to fail like dark universe movies and all this sort of stuff. Uh, it just becomes too inundated with trying to be like we're part of a larger universe and they don't tell uh, a singular insular story. And G.I. Joe, a real American hero. You know, yeah, there is some 80s propaganda and, you know, capitalism and maybe even borderline nationalism to that. That was handled very, I want to say, eloquently for the 80s. You know, they gave us what we wanted. They gave us cool toys they gave us cool commercials they gave us cool cartoons and they kind of spoon fed us this militaristic idea and they made it fun and they made the characters lovable and cool there's none of that in this and they took the coolest character of gi joe why he was cool is because he didn't speak he was mysterious he didn't really have a background and any background that you knew of was from the little dossier that came on the back of the action figure which was already very, you know, minimal at that. Highly classified, everything classified. And then they turn that character into this origin that completely destroys any of the cool, mystical, mythological, and heroic stuff that we loved this character for. And they turned him into 
essentially a whiny kid that knows karate. Fair points all around. And I, I just got curious because I, I haven't actually looked this up. Uh, we were still technically in the middle of the pandemic. We're still technically in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, but the budget for this movie is estimated to be about $88 million. It was also supposed to have come out, I believe, summer or fall 2020. So there's extra there's extra costs for just sitting on the movie for a full year. Yeah. And then there's the marketing budget, which they say double the cost. So this is around uh, a $170 million movie. Mm-hmm. And this grossed worldwide $40 million. Yeah. And so like you were saying, like this is grossly marketed for a modern action audience, but they really should have marketed it for the nostalgia factor to people in our generation, our age, but there's nothing that appeals to us in this movie that would be like, Oh yeah, GI Joe, let's go see it. Or snake eyes. Let's, let's go see what, what this is all about. Cause like when you think snake eyes, like you're saying, he's the silent protagonist of the Joes, mm-hmm. but we don't get any indication as to what happens and why he becomes silent because they want to build a snake eyes franchise first and just have the Joes be side characters or something, or he has his own adventures and the Joes just kind of keep coming into his adventures through circumstance. Like, what are you trying to do with this? Well, I don't think you're going to get a sequel to this or any continuations (laughs) anytime soon. Roughly $140 million lost. No way. (laughs) Right. I mean, so I'm actually doing an episode of the cult worthy classic soon on the Mel Brooks movie, the producers about a couple of guys that intentionally make a flop so they can collect the insurance money and make a profit. This feels a lot like this because think of it this way. This is a cartoon toy franchise that they turn into a movie with no action figure or toy attachments to it. There was no marketing or cartoon or spinoff of this thing. There was like maybe a Snake Eyes action figure that sat alone on a shelf in a Walmart or something. But there's no <laughs> toy line to go with this. There's no people in line trying to buy a Snake Eyes mask or a Snake Eyes katana. This doesn't make sense on a fiscal level. If they were going to do this, they should have done it in 2015 or 16 after G.I. Joe Retaliation. Because if you think of the reason why G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra, and Retaliation worked, it was a nostalgia factor, but you had star power. You had Channing Tatum in the first one, and in the second one, you had The Rock and Bruce Willis. Like You don't have anything like that in this film. Now, uh, Henry Golding was in uh, Crazy Rich Asians and a few other things. So yeah, he's got some recognition, but he doesn't have the kind of star power to make a franchise like this work. With the limited roles that he's had, which most of them that I've seen are all supporting. Uh, you mentioned Crazy Rich Asians. I've also seen him in A Simple Favor. Which yeah, Simple Favor. Both are pretty. Yeah, both are really good movies, and he's very yeah, solid fun. in them. But they don't say action star. They 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 know what they are. And I think he can have that action star quality to him. I think he handled a lot of the action that they gave him pretty well. It's just the fact that, among other things, he his accent came through so many times. And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, is he revealing something to us? No, he's just he forgot to 
turn off the accent or he can't turn off the accent with the word father or other words in this sentence right now. So this is going to get into the little bit more uncomfortable part of this conversation that I was kind of sitting on during the viewing of this film and I didn't text you or, or message you anything about it, but nothing upsets me more, especially in Asian representation of blatant whitewashing of Asian characters. And this film does it just so unapologetically. So first of all, you've got an amazing Asian action star in this film. You have Aiko Uwais from The Raid and Raid 2. He deserves to be a full mainstream action star. He barely fights in this film. He barely does anything. He just kind of stands around and just makes, you know, these condescending looks towards Snake Eyes. He doesn't even have a chance to like show off what he can do except for maybe the bowl scene in the training sequence, which was cool. But they wasted him in the first Star Wars movie too, in The Force Awakens. Him and the other guy from the raid are part of that pirate crew that come onto Han Solo's ship when he releases that tentacle monster. The most useless sequence in The Force Awakens. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember when that film first came out and I saw a casting announcement of him and the co-star from the raid. And in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, there's going to be some cool Jedi ninja space action, Kung space Kung Fu. No, they essentially were there to get eaten by a tentacle monster. So they're just wasting already proven cult-worthy martial art Marshall's art talent in this role was upsetting. And then, you know, you've got this, this ninja clan, which is actually pretty accurate to the lore, the Ashkagari ninja clan. But it seems so wrong with all of these different uh, Asian performances. No, they are Asian actors. They're Asian stars. But they're English, they're British, they're Australian, they're Swedish. There's all these different nationalities, even though ethnically they are Asian. But it, I, I feel like it was trying to do its best at representation. But at the same time, it felt so forced, as so many representations do these days, that a conscious film viewer finds it kind of offensive. And that's kind of how I found it. I'm not sure if that's just me being too high up on my soapbox about representation, but I did feel it was a little too forced. I can definitely see that. As someone who knows G.I. Joe and uh, doesn't, I'm, I'm not as invested in it as you are. I thought, okay, Snake Eyes from my recollection is he's just a white guy who, if I remember, he had his like vocal cords severely damaged, which is why he doesn't talk. Um, and then they're trying to give him an origin story and they're they're going to uh, give him a, a new ethnicity to appeal to a different audience, essentially, and also just change up the origin story from he's a mercenary who works for the Joes and then he is a Joe. Uh, so I, I appreciate the effort but there needed to be more thought put into it. And like you're saying, uh, it, it did seem kind of disingenuous to just outright. Okay. Well, he storm shadow is an Asian character. So let's just make them both Asian instead of they're just really close. Uh, right. It, it just, there's little things like that where you can be like, okay, I can see where you're just trying to pander to your Asian market, uh, the Chinese market and all that. 
other uh, studio stuff. And again, this movie wasn't made for anyone in particular. It just seemed like, oh, Crazy Rich Asians did great work with Asian characters. And uh, the first like fully Asian cast movie ever released by a major studio made bank, got awards. Let's let's try it with an action movie. And then 100 (laughs) percent. Unfortunately for them, two months later, Shang-Chi came out and made a much better movie. And that's the problem with this one is, like I said, like the they created their own origin. And yes, in most G.I. Joe lore, Snake Eyes is assumed to be Caucasian. I kind of liked how they did the origin story in the first G.I. Joe film where he was like a child and he was an orphan, a thief, and the clan took him in and he was raised with Storm Shadow. That is a good origin story. The problem with this film is that everything just happens way too late in life and too quickly. You know, it, it is 100% reasonable that the people in the clan are so upset at Tommy, who, spoiler alert, eventually becomes Storm Shadow, that they are not wrong. Like, this guy watched this dude fight once, and he's like, now we can be <laughs> brothers and join the clan. I'm going to teach you all the secrets. It's like, yeah, dude, you don't deserve to lead this clan. Get the fuck out. Yeah, was it? uh, It was Kenta was the the main bad of the the movie. Uh, Again, we're going full spoilers because no one else is ever watching this movie ever again. Um, Kenta is uh, a Yakuza boss who was kicked out of the Irish Kagage, uh, which I hope I'm saying that right. Um, he, He got kicked out because he wanted to use this gem that they're protecting and they they have a sworn oath to never use it, but to protect it. So uh, he got kicked out. And the next in line is Tommy, who, again, becomes Storm Shadow. And uh, he Tommy, for whatever reason, is undercover within Kenta's Yakuza cell. And Kenta knows this. So he mm-hmm. sets up Tommy to be murdered. But he also is setting up Tommy to have Snake Eyes become his best friend. And hijinks ensue, I guess. Yeah, I really don't know what a, a, a three ninjas origin story kind of happens, but it's only with one person. And they like Antonio said, they just completely trust him because Tommy says he saved my life. And I, I looked into his eyes and he had honor and he said he looked into mine and I had honor. So clearly we are best of friends now. And there's a lot of, you know, everyone doubts him and. I'm not going to say that the performances in this film are bad. Like these are really talented actors doing the best with their material, especially uh, Haruka Abe as Akiko, who's kind of like the female protagonist of the film. She's like the security chief of this clan and she's amazing. She's a badass, but she also has some very strong reservations about this snake eyes character, even though there are some like emotions that are kind of brewing. And I'm glad they didn't go into that too much. It'd have been too much for this film to handle, but like her performance is really great. And anytime she was on screen, I felt like she was making the movie just a little bit more palatable for me. Like I would say that she was probably my favorite character in this movie. Agreed. 100%. She, she's definitely the catalyst and she carries most of the scenes she's in. Uh, unlike, <laughs> unlike our GI Joe characters here, um, Samara Weaving playing Scarlet and Ursula uh, Corbero, Corbero playing the Baroness, uh, Corbero. Yeah, I, I, oh man, the acting between those two was just—I I really don't know what their direction was, but it was not good. Uh, 
it seemed like uh, Samara was given the direction of be Black Widow, but not Black Widow. And then uh, the Baroness was just like, be um, Natasha from Boris and Natasha, Rocky and Bullwinkle, <laughs> but maybe not quite as over the top. Yeah, I was not impressed with the Baroness performance whatsoever. And the Baroness is an awesome, awesome character in the cartoon, in the comics, in the toy line. Uh, Sienna Miller played her in the original G.I. Joe movies and was, I think, fantastic in that role. So Mara Weaving, I like as an actress. She was in that film, Ready or Not, that kind of horror film that was mm-hmm. in the house of like games. It's like last one alive kind of thing. That was a really good performance. I like her a lot, but they don't give her anything to do here. Like it is a glorified cameo, but let's not forget, we mentioned this earlier, she is literally the only G.I. Joe officially that appears in this movie. <laughs> Technically speaking, Technically there's two, speaking, but, there's two. <laughs> but yeah, as far as like recognized, recognizable Joes, um, there is one thing I will say about Ursula Cabrero's performance. If you look at those heels she's walking in, Okay, maybe she deserves an Oscar just for being able to walk <laughs> in those things. They're like they're like a tenth of an inch thick. And and I like how do you stand on that? And like run around and shoot a machine gun, yeah. No, I'm sh- yeah, I mean <laughs> <laughs> you, you were talking about the camera work when we were first discussing the film and there are some impressive action scenes in this film. I think two things affect them in a negative way the fact that the film is PG-13, so they can't go that far with the violence. It's which so is, sanitized. It's so sanitized. You've got machine guns and you've got katana blades. You know, it should be John Wick out there, but it's it's not. But also at the same time, it kind of speaks to the, the G.I. Joe trope of the cartoon where no one really dies. Like everyone's a bad <laughs> shot. So I kind of watched the film with a little bit of that notes? in there. No, I mean, I've seen 80 <laughs> episodes of G.I. Joe, man. <laughs> so uh, two of my notes are uh, we have a lot of sword play action, but it's so sanitized. I think I might be watching Turtle Ninja Turtles 2. And then I was saying Ninja Turtles go- 3. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't it in Turtles 2 the entire opening scene? They just play with props because they could not yeah. use their weapons, use weapons. offensively. And I was saying um, and Turtles in, what was the third one? Turtles in Time? Turtles in Time. Of? Yeah. Just because it had that kind of Asian village setting, and that's why it kind of reminded me of that, too. <laughs> uh, the action is so wildly inconsistent, though. Like, uh, three of my, I have three notes here. Um, uh, we have, Tommy's annoying. Okay, Tommy's kind of cool. <laughs> that, uh, that movie to in time was sweet. Why do all the Yakuza have swords instead of guns? Um, so, like, there's moments where they have these like almost crouching tiger, hidden dragon kind of maneuvers where they jump like nine feet in the air and they kind of not necessarily hover, but they're there for a a second longer than they should be among also just making superhuman leaps. But the, it's never established that this is that kind of universe or like, that's what they're training them to do as far as the uh, Arish Kagage. And so I'm like, yeah, that looked great, but is this like part of the universe or is this just natural ability? Is this something they have learned through the training with the Irish Kakage? What is happening here? I mean, I think they're just trying to take like a little bit of a left turn from, you know, the 
kind of boots on the ground G.I. Joe mentality of the original films and the comic book going to something a little bit more mystical. But at the same time, you know, it, it plays to that trope of this village has these warriors who are very specific in their skill set. You know, you've got the guy who's really good at blending into his environment. You've got the brawler guy. You've got the old lady with the fans. When I was watching the end of this film, I almost felt like I was watching Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> I felt like I felt like you had all these different characters, each with their own little strengths and weaknesses, doing their own little style of battle. And I was like, oh, well, that would have been Monkey, and that would have been Crane, and that would have been uh, the Grasshopper or whatever she is, you know? I was just going to say, you know, that we, we kind of just blew through all of that into to get to this ending fight scene. But there are some things that happen in between that this is me trying to make some good points of uh, what is truly a bad film and a disappointing film for a GI Joe movie. I mean, there can be silver linings in here. Like, like, uh, like I had mentioned, like you had mentioned too, like some of the action sequences and some of the choreography is really good. And like, there are a couple of moments where they do the superhero pose or like they, they've got their swords and they're, they're in like a, a really cool badass. I'm a swordsman pose. And the camera like pans it. I'm like, that was nice. You should have done more of that. But do we really care about the characters enough to like be cheering them when they hit that moment? Because there is that Avengers assemble moment where the bad guy was named Kenta gets the stone and they've got everyone lined up in like a triangular pattern and they all get into their superhero pose as he's about to shoot the fireball. I was just like, okay, so we just did Avengers now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah the um i have speaking of that moment once kenta gets the the jewel uh i <laughs> my note here says wow they dropped an f-bomb immediately after dropping a literal bomb interesting because <laughs> there's the, there's that avengers assemble moment where they're all lined up and then kenta's about ready to blast them with the gem which apparently is like supernatural uh implosion abilities and they drop a smoke bomb and then everyone runs away and hides so that he can't have a line of sight on them. And the Baroness goes, fuck this and just walks away. And I'm like, wow, they, among other things, they dropped an F bomb. And as I said that out loud to myself, I was like, Oh, they dropped, they literally just dropped a bomb too. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a PG 13 movie. You got to have your one F word, just like uh, Wolverine in the uh, X-Men first class. You know, it's uh, it, it's kind of expected now to have one in there. But, you know, here, here's here's my thing. Like, we could just tear this this film apart. What I want to do for a minute is talk about how I would have liked to have seen a respectable origin story coming from someone who is a G.I. Joe fan specifically. So, like, if we were to kind of go back and rewrite this, reformulate it, maybe repitch it to the studio maybe first convince them not to make it, but if they have to, (laughs) (laughs) these are the changes we'd like to see. You know, first of all, this film feels like it would have been made in the early 2000s. It has that early 2000s energy. And I think that we as film appreciators and watchers and deconstructors now because everyone's got a blog everyone's got a podcast everyone's got a youtube channel where they talk about the movies 
I, I wanted to see something that was going to challenge me as a viewer more instead of making this cookie cutter formulaic action pattern. So I would say I would have liked to have seen something more like what the Mortal Kombat movie did a couple years ago did with their intro. Because even though that movie, it was Turn Your Brain Off Entertainment, the opening scene was actually beautiful. It was beautifully shot. It was beautifully acted. The action was fantastic. It felt like I was watching a samurai film from the 60s with Mortal Kombat lore placed into it. And then, of course, it breaks into your good old-fashioned beat-em-up video game adaptation movie. But a lot of people I talked to who, who watched that film were really impressed with that opening sequence as well. I would have liked to have seen something more like that. Not this Russian mobster, gangster, whatever, like we've seen a thousand times, busting into a place and killing the dad in front of his son. There should have been something a little bit more operatic about it. That would have been my first pitch. You'll have to re refresh me on the Mortal Kombat one. Um, not that I didn't enjoy it, uh, but when I watched that, my oldest daughter came down and we're like, oh no, she's going to be terrified of this. And then there's uh -huh. a moment where uh, uh, I, th I think it was Goro gets his arms ripped off or something happens to him that's really brutal. And my daughter laughed. And so like that moment just isn't, <laughs> is burned in my brain. In a nutshell, it was kind of just like an origin story of how Sub-Zero and Scorpion became lifetime enemies through the centuries. You know, it kind of started back a hundred, you know, hundreds of years earlier. So we weren't in modern times. And I thought that there was a real kind of Japanese samurai film of the 60s feeling where it's kind of mellow but ominous. And I think that's one of the things that this film lacks is there is no ominous moment at all in this film. It's all just flash bang techno music like we would have seen in the early 2000s. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that yeah, it's almost like a its own little um uh I can't remember the name now. Yeah, it's like its own little in its own little like prequel movie that they created yeah. and then it they just could have played as a short story. film on its own. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, that was really good. Um yeah, if if I was going to offer a fix of this, among other things, I would just completely scrap the G.I. Joe stuff like like we talked about earlier, where um, the way Iron Man did it is you don't really shove it in anyone's face like you just play the movie out. You get rid of the G.I. Joe stuff because there's there's already conflict there. You've got a pretty decent conflict of interest with Snake Eyes wanting to be part of this thing, but he's also just consumed with his his goal of revenge. And then you throw in a, a G.I. Joe subplot in there, which get rid of it, make something else like shoot, spend more time with Tommy because there's a yeah. really quick turn that doesn't feel earned with him. Uh, it's just like, oh, you've betrayed me for the third time and now I'm pissed at you forever. Like, OK, can we see a little bit more of his like his fall into what eventually becomes a villain while we see yeah. Snake Eyes's rise? Like we need more of that. Yeah, almost like a Harvey Dent kind of character development from The Dark Knight yeah. where there is a, a transition towards the middle because the problem is, is that Tommy's already a bad guy and that doesn't really help. You know, and also the thing that could have worked is I, I kind of like what um, Mad Max Fury Road did where you have a title character come in and then, you know, a third away in the movie, 
that character is taken over by a secondary character who pretty much carries the rest of the film. I would not have minded seeing something like that even. Just something to keep us on our toes and not... I mean, the problem with this film is like, we know what it's going to be. We hope it's not going to be that way. And then we sit through two hours. It's two hours long <laughs> of this film and it pretty much came to fruition everything that we were expecting it would be but hoped it wouldn't be. Again, you, you can get rid of the the supernatural stuff too. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, we could definitely like shift focus to Akiko too. May, not necessarily go full backstory with her, but she also has a turn where she is very much against Snake Eyes. And then we see that she's like, oh, well, I mean, he does have a us. good heart. Yeah. Yeah. He he's just, you know, he's doing Peter from the Bible where he's he's got to deny us three times. Then he realizes what he's done is wrong. Uh, so <laughs> There, there's elements there that could be a decent movie. I don't think anything in this movie could make a good to great movie, but I think there is enough that if they did it right, they could have gotten that sequel that maybe they were building towards, or at least that connected universe that they were building towards. And as a GI Joe fan, I, I have to say that like, there is just, you know, these repeated moments of, of disappointment and frustration where I, I can, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but I can see how many of you Star Wars fans do get upset, like with the sequel trilogy. And if one of these shows on Disney Plus doesn't hit the mark in the way that you'd like, you guys have discussed it. That's pretty much what your podcast has been about the last few months. <laughs> it's either a, a, a Marvel show on Disney Plus or a Star Wars show on, on Disney Plus. Yep. But again, it's like, I would love to see G.I. Joe come back into the zeitgeist the way it was in the 80s. And I would say that now is actually the perfect time where we are in this weird place where war is always on the horizon, just like it was in the 80s with the Russians, where we have like this weird political division, kind of how it was in the 80s with Reagan. It would be a good time to have some kind of intellectual property kind of be like pro-America, anti-evil, and in a way to kind of like bring people together with either a fun movie or a fun cartoon or a fun toy. But things just aren't marketed that way anymore. It's all about that opening weekend. It's like, I think that's what studios go after. It's like, we don't care about the legacy of this film. This film is for our opening weekend and like the week after. And this went to streaming almost immediately. But of course, because it was open during the pandemic. I mean, the, we said this back in 2010, 2011, when they were getting ready to make a Captain America movie. I don't know how you make a, a G.I. Joe movie really work with the pro-America uh, message in there. I know that um, if I remember correctly, the the 2009 G.I. Joe movie, uh, Rise of Cobra, I, I think that kind of c tried to distance itself where they were like, oh, we're, we're just a multinational organization but i think they were still funded by the u.s government but they're uh you know shadow ops or they're they're the uh black ops team that takes on the missions that no one else can handle uh so like maybe you make it more of like a mission impossible kind of movie where uh instead of like giving them weird power suits you give them cool gadgets and then they're just a team that work together and have to defeat ultimate evil in a, a terrorist organization you don't necessarily have to lean full bore into the pro-American propaganda stuff. 
Yeah, you don't have to. And I think G.I. Joe towards the end, I mean, they even had like a G.I. Joe International towards the end of the toy run. Like they were already working on that. You know, we're defending the world now, not just the United States. And I think there was a lot of that in the original cartoon and the comic book, but it was still really pushing pro-America. We don't have to do that now, but we do need to not make these characters so... I don't want to say sanitized. We don't have to make them so palatable to today's climate. Like there can be a little bit of edge to characters because we like edge. We, we like when our superheroes are a little bit dark, a little broody, a little, a little gruesome. We've seen that with Batman movies, even though we complain about it, they're making money. So there's an audience for it. And that's what the studios really care about. So you can still do that. You don't have to go backwards and make everything so like comical because that was my biggest issue with Retaliation and Rise of Cobra is that it was a little too comic booky for me. It didn't feel like the the toy line in my opinion. So maybe something like that. And I think this film tried to do that, but like we were saying at the beginning, it's only works that way because it's a vengeance story of one character not the G.I. Joe franchise. Which that's them that I, I, I'm trying not to compliment this movie because again, I, I think if, if you took out all the G.I. Joe stuff and you just basically took the elements that you had and padded it out to a 80 to 90 minute movie, I think it's a, a solid action movie that you probably put more like $50 million into the budget and you make, 75 million at the box office globally. Yeah. You you may, you turn a little bit of a profit. I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be funny? <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if they had made a Snake Eyes origin film that had no swords, no guns, no action, <laughs> just a character study and watch it be like an Oscar contender. It's like, wow, that was a GI Joe movie. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about, uh, uh, subverting expectations. I'd go see it. <laughs> Yeah, I there's there's always room for different things like for as much as I don't care for Joker, people enjoyed that movie and they they got something out of it. That's not what a Joker movie should be that that could literally be called any other movie and it would still be pretty decent as far as like a, a gang or like a crime boss origin story. But instead, it's the Joker and you get the comic book fans all enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, not to go off on a tangent, but that to me was a very interchangeable story. It could have been anybody placed into yep. that role and it would have had the same kind of appeal. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that's to the benefit of the movie is the fact that it, it, even though it is tied to Batman lore, you could literally swap out any name in, in that movie uh, he doesn't want to be called the Joker. He wants to be called the clown and you don't deal with the Waynes. You, you just call them the Smiths or something. And, oh, it's still the same movie. Essentially, it's the mental breakdown of a guy, even though it's poorly demonstrated or poorly represented mental health issues. Yeah. And it's it's still a, a pretty compelling story. Like, in my opinion, it's probably more compelling if you get rid of the Joker stuff. So if I have to give this movie any credit it would be that i'm kind of relieved that it failed the way it did because hopefully it means they're not going to continue to tarnish this intellectual property hopefully this puts the bow on it saying okay well apparently gi joe doesn't work in the 2020s and maybe we'll try it again in like 20 years or something but 
I said this in my G.I. Joe episode, and I, I've kind of said it in a few episodes of the past, especially the legacy sequel episodes when we were talking about some movies that just didn't need their legacy sequel. This was a G.I. Joe was a product of its time, and it really worked in its time. And anytime I think nostalgically or fanboy about G.I. Joe, it's from the period when it was the most relevant. So we just don't need to do it anymore. Maybe it's something that could work as like what Kevin Smith did with He-Man uh, was a yeah. retribution or resurrection or something. Yeah, uh, it, it could work if you grow it up a little bit with your intended audience. But uh, I don't know if you ever ended up watching that. Uh, that community episode that I had recommended to you where uh, Jeff ends up having like a really weird mental break where uh, he overdoses on pills and alcohol and ends up having this really lucid GI Joe inspired dream where he just wants to live in a GI Joe world for the rest of his life. Uh, it's, it's a really funny, but interesting episode of the, of community. Like it's up there with um, modern warfare with me with the paintball episodes. It's, it's, it's funny. It's compelling. And it, it speaks a lot to what worked with GI Joe back in those days, but also like you, you need to kill people to be interesting in this day and age. Like you, <laughs> again, not to go back to last week, but Alex and I were talking about how stormtroopers literally had civilians or refugees or whatever you want to call them in their within inches of them. And they're just shooting wildly and missing. And you can't have that in this, which they didn't do that. Uh, Scarlet and Baroness both kill quite a few people. So does snake eyes and Tommy storm shadow. So like they aren't, at least walking away from the body count issue. It's more the, again, like we were saying, it's sanitized to the point where people are getting sliced in half with katanas, but there's no blood. The, the blades are clean and everyone's just kind of like, Oh man, one clean swipe and he's down. Well, and I don't know. I don't think this is going to hurt anybody's acting career. I mean, Henry Golding's already got two sequels to crazy rich Asians. Like I, they might even be filming by now, but I know they're going like back to back on those. Uh, I think he's got a movie coming out with uh, Numi Rapace and Sam Neill. It's like a spy thriller. So he's a likable guy. I like him. I don't think this movie is going to hurt his career. Uh, his career, I think this is early enough for him to have one of these little oopsies and still maintain a solid career. And I know that like Eco Awais has got plenty of things coming up over in Malaysia and all the other countries that he does films in. So I don't think this is going to hurt anybody maybe the director because he's got a few bombs on his on his list now but we've seen directors like that really come back and kill it in streaming so i I think this might just be like a cautionary tale and a lesson learned kind of film for studios intellectual properties and maybe just suffering bad luck of pandemic you know like so many movies did i think maybe it could have made its money back if it hadn't released in the middle of the pandemic uh, in the middle of an ongoing pandemic. But yeah, the, this is definitely one of those, this was made by an algorithm or by studio executives who were like, well, this, this movie made money back then. Let's, let's do that. But that movie was 2005 and we've had almost 20, 15 years of the MCU to fall back on now that people have evolved with. So like just going back and doing an origin story does not work anymore. Uh, but <laughs> for circum or not for uh, for 
for pomp and for uh, just because it's what we do, we do have a grading system here, which is must see or pass. Uh, so <laughs> let's go ahead and give our our official grades here and I'll, I'll let you go first. I mean, definitely a pass, especially if you're a G.I. Joe fan and you haven't seen it. Just put it out of your memory. Do a Men in Black memory wash. It doesn't exist <laughs> and you'll be all better for it. I'm going to give this a pass too. Uh, I was genuinely curious to see this movie, which again is part of why I, I offered this up to Antonio because we, we do have a good topic in mind for another team up here where we're going to talk cult worthy movies inspired by comics, mm -hmm. which we've already discussed a couple of those uh, off off air, which I'm really excited to dive back into those because like among other the, to tease one of them road to perdition is like one of my all time favorite movies. It's such a gorgeous and beautiful movie. Uh, and I, I really can't wait to talk about that. Uh, but like this just hits all those origin story tropes. Like this was 2021's Morbius, except no one cared enough to make jokes about it uh, where Morbius is just so much worse. But like uh, one of my last notes here is just talking about like, why do why does he need the costume just to cap off the end of this movie unless they already knew it wasn't getting an, a a sequel cuz like maybe you build towards him getting the suit from the joes instead it's a gift from the joes to be like hey maybe one day you want to uh, you know work with us even though you literally just worked with us yeah you know and the costume is like his iconic stamp, like the costume and the, and the katana. I remember seeing early origin art for Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man. And a lot of it had Peter Parker in like the gym tracksuit Spider-Man outfit with like the bad hoodie mask. And there was a lot of talk online back then of like, what if most of the film was him wearing that? And then he has the iconic suit at the end. I feel like this was kind of like that, you know, you're saving the suit for the end, but it didn't add to the story and it didn't add to anything that was going on with the character. They could have easily had him steal the suit in act two and just been a badass the rest of the movie. And I think I would have enjoyed it more. I enjoyed the ninja suit. Honestly, I, I don't quite, at least in this context for the movie, I didn't really care for the snake eyes suit because again, you're, you're kind of, taking away from it from the the character because uh, again there is small silver linings in this movie one of which is like the character arc where again he he's so invested in in this revenge story that he betrays tommy and the the irish kagage like three times because uh, and again like the the movie is so like you think it's predictable so you're like okay well he's gonna change his mind this time oh he didn't <laughs> oh he's gonna change his mind this time Oh, he didn't. Oh, he didn't. Uh, oh, he's going to change his mind this time. It's the third time. It's the rule of threes. He's going to change his mind. He gave them the fucking jewel. Like <laughs> what? <laughs> and then, uh, then he, he realizes after the fact that like, oh no, actually I feel awful for having done that. Let's go and redeem the, or redeem myself. And I, I do like that. It is kind of a redemption arc where he doesn't die in the end. Although they threatened to kill him multiple times even after yeah. the second betrayal. And then the third time they're like, Oh, well, you, you helped us. I guess as long as we don't ever see you again, you're fine. And then of course, like we get the promise of storm shadow, you know, coming back and being a villain in a sequel, which we'll never get. And that's fine. <laughs> uh, and one of the things <laughs> I'd like that... to say, <laughs> go ahead. 
that that bothered me at because he's on a plane and then the Baroness shows up in a flight attendant outfit, which fine, whatever. But he she sits down. And he's like, so, Tommy, where do you want to go? And he's just like, call me Storm Shadow. Like, you just came up with that shit. Like <laughs> what? I know this is fan service, but, you know, workshop it a little bit. Or obviously you've been thinking about this. Have him holding like a trapper keeper from a grade school that he's like written storm <laughs> shadow over and over again on that way you get a little bit psychology behind it. But I, I would just like to say that like for, for your listeners, which I think some of your listeners, maybe my listeners, I am usually not this critical of films on my show. That's why I was happy to come onto this one. So I can get some of this critical energy out that gets pented up <laughs> from me being mostly complimentary about the films I talk about on my show. But if you haven't listened to my show, I'm not as sarcastic or critical of, of films on that one. So thank you, Josh, for giving me the opportunity <laughs> to vent a little bit. It feels really good. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's, that's half the point of doing bad movies every now and then is to just get it, get some of that pent up aggression out. And just sometimes it, it is kind of cathartic to watch a bad movie and not necessarily because again, there for most movies, there is a silver lining and this one, I think they're, there's potential in there, but they just didn't care about it. They just wanted to push out this franchise again, hopefully, and maybe make some money off toys. But uh, in a in a worst best worst case scenario for them, a small indie podcast with fifty to sixty listeners a week uh, decided to shit on it for an hour. Yeah, and thank you for having me on to shit on it for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> It is my pleasure. And uh, I mean, I've, I've been trying to figure out a way to get you on for multiple episodes because you've had me on so many times and I'm so appreciative of it. And I love hearing about like how well those episodes do, because those those are some like genuinely Im- impressive moments to me where I was like, I helped create that. Like what happened now? I don't know how much you've talked about them on your show, but Josh has been on the Goofy movie episode He's been on the cult-worthy potluck episode, and then he's been on the cult-worthy Father's Day special. And all three of those were great episodes to have him on, but the Goofy Movie episode and the Father's Day episode are two of my proudest moments on that show, and Josh was a huge part of that. So yeah, man, thanks for bringing your energy to my show. I enjoy doing the podcasting stuff, and uh, if, if anything, those numbers are indicative of how good of a host you are, because... Uh, where you lead the the discussion is where we go and it just, it's a good ebb and flow. So uh, if anything, again, it's, it's a testament to how good of a host you can be when you have more than just yourself on there too. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate that a lot. It's hard for me to take compliments. So I try to spin them right back, <laughs> even though what I said is absolutely true. So we'll wrap it up there. Snake eyes pass from both of us. Uh, Antonio, feel free to share your socials and again, your podcasts. So the shows are the Cult Worthy Podcast and the Cult Worthy Classic. And I'll just throw this out there. I am in the middle of switching hosting platforms. So all my episodes are available. They just might look a little out of order because, you know, switching platforms is kind of a tedious process. But I'm out there. If you can't find me or if you are subscribed and you lost that subscription, just type it in again and resubscribe and things will go back to normal. And then follow me on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, Facebook, and then thecultworthy.com is my website where I've got all my reviews, all of my shows, 
and then all of my links to my cult-worthy partners like Josh at Talking Smack. Yeah, the your website is fantastic because again, there's there's things in there that I I need to expand beyond superheroes and just fun action movies. So looking at what Antonio has rated highly, I'm like, oh, I'll give that a shot. Maybe if I can ever find the time <laughs> when my kids are asleep and I'm not asleep as well. Yeah, time, man. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Josh underscore Scar. Scar is spelled S-K-A-A-R. Uh, you can find the podcast at Talking Smack Pod, uh, Smack, S-M-A-C. You can follow us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitch as well. And uh, I oh, you can email us at tsmackpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Good Pods, Apple Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, most other podcasting platforms, we are also going to be transitioning to a new uh, hosting service. So we will probably end up having uh, additional platforms as well. And don't forget to review, like, comment, subscribe, whatever it is you're listening on. Give us some feedback and hopefully a good review. And we appreciate you taking the time. Antonio, I, I appreciate you taking the time to be on here. No problem, my friend. Anytime. And again, thank you everyone for listening. Take care. Watch Star Trek.